0: This is a Bible study examining the U.S. Constitution, and for this first part, we're going to look at the preamble. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and without any hesitation, let's jump into the text. The preamble to the U.S. Constitution reads as follows. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. And that's it. These opening lines are very important. And if you didn't memorize all of that, that's okay. We're going to break down this language and kind of have a slow-paced examination of it. But what I hope to do today is to bring you something of value where we can study the philosophies that founded America, see how much of those have been lost, and then compare that to the metric of the biblical worldview so that we ourselves might be better prepared to make good on the talents in which God has entrusted us. We didn't choose when or where to be born, but we have been born for a time such as this, to be men and women who raise up fervent courage to shine the light of the gospel in the world around us. So as we look at the the Constitution, we're gonna be comparing that to scripture and really looking to see what providence can do in our lives. So as we look at the preamble, it opens up with that language, we the people, and that is so important. And what I want us to keep in mind in our study is that vocabulary matters. The precise words are not placed here by accident. There's a lot of wisdom in the careful choice of words. And the vocabulary, it shows us what we should have eyes to see. And I want us to remember that critical thinking is not just about yes or no choices, but about weighing things out against a metric of truth. Now, what this means is that sometimes we will outright reject things and accept others, but there will also be times where we put things in a proper order, and we say, yes, this and this are both true, these two things are, but one is more important than the other. Sometimes we have to, to rate things out in their degrees of importance. So opening up, we find this language, we the people. And this is so fundamental to who we are, because it is we the people who have formed this union. It's not King George or Caesar in Rome or any such royal nobility. It is the people. The sons of Adam, the daughters of Eve, they have assembled together to form this union. And one of the things which has really been a difficult problem for the church is wondering how we relate to worldly authorities. In our world around us, we often wonder, did God put this person here, or did this happen by accident? Is this something which is inspired by the forces of hell, or is this something which God is trying to work in? You know, we often wonder exactly where God is in the world around us. And of course, God will do as he may. But when it comes to giving honor to authority in the world around us, this is something which the church really must understand very clearly. Romans 13, 7, it says, Pay to all what is due them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, and honor to whom honor is due. There have been some times in history where people have applied this and say, well, if something is written a law in a land, you've got to go along with it because, you know, God has put them there and you should go along with it. But yet, that's not really true. In the time that Paul wrote this, and even in the time when Jesus was, was doing the ministry that we can now read in the Gospels, Rome had laws about who you could worship and who you couldn't. And in fact, it was required by law to go into the pagan temples and do something to please some of the gods of Rome. Not really, it didn't matter how you felt about this or any sort of personal covenant, but they had this thing called the Pax Deorum where you were required to satisfy the gods of Rome. Well, strangely enough, you don't ever see Jesus in a pagan temple. Strangely enough, you see Christians being killed for refusing to comply with this law. You don't see people like Paul telling people to go into the pagan temples and indulge yourself in some wicked sin. There is an understanding that says, if it is not against the law of God, then do give taxes to whom they are due. Revenue to whom revenue is due. Honor to whom honor is due. And when this question is put in the context of America, we have to understand that we, the people, have formed this union. Honor is actually due to the American people. And do not forget that. That is foundational to who we are. And if the people decide to do something which is ungodly, Scripture does not command you to do ungodly things to please some worldly entity. I mean, that, that's just evil. I mean, that's just idolatry. But instead, Scripture does say give honor to who honor is due. And in America, that honor is actually due we the people. And yes, out of neighborly love and charity of Christian hearts, we do honor our public servants and love them. But the order of things is structured in such a way that the public servants are supposed to honor the people who they represent. And by the principle of Romans 13, we understand that, well, simply because we're a representative republic, that honor is actually due to the American people. We're not designed to have a class of nobility, people who have access to truth that others do not, people who know better on how to organize things than others, that is not meant to be the case. And the reason why I want us to talk about this Romans 13 passage so immediately in our study is because we have a lot of politicians who do not want to agree to this order. And even though they may not say this out loud, their actions, their behaviors, the things they implement, the fruits of of their conduct is that they have a special access to truth. They have a special power that you do not, and you should bow down to that and you should honor it simply because they're in elected office. But that is completely backwards from the American philosophy, and it is not parallel with Romans 13. It is actually against Romans 13. When you recognize that we the people form this union, honor is due the American people. And if politicians do not want to agree to honor the people as opposed to just tell the people what to do, well then they don't need to be anywhere near the elected offices in America or any bureaucratic role or even being a journalist for that matter. They they should not. And we can see in our modern world how people have elevated things like the Capitol building And had this notion that says the Capitol building, it is sacred. An assault on the Capitol building is an assault on the foundation of the American people. But it's interesting because these same statements were not made when there were assaults and riots and things going on, people's homes, their businesses. You know, there wasn't an even distribution of things. And in America, we have to understand that your home whether it be out in the rural sticks where I live or in a city penthouse, your home is actually more sacred than is a building meant for general service. A public building, whether it be the Capitol building or a library, is actually meant to be less sacred than your home, your business, your church here in America. And if people don't recognize that, if they don't want to respect that, well, then they don't need to be elected leaders here in America. They don't need to be near any reign of, of power because they neither understand the Constitution nor Romans 13. What they have is a run-of-the-mill monarchy. And, again, we're all sinners, all needing redemption, and they can have that philosophy if they want, but they're not honoring the, the truth of America or Scripture if they want to bring that here. Politicians, journalists, and all the various people that think there is a special class in America that has higher status than we the people, that is just... A big problem and it's it's set for failure. And when I say failure, let me be specific about this. It's set to destroy the beautiful liberty that was America and take America back to, you know, whether it be some sort of feudal society, some sort of class warfare society like you might find in in Russia or something like that that's focused on the the communism and socialism which comes out of the old monarchies and stuff like that. What we're going to see is America will collapse and will revert back into a society where there are a special group of people who believe they know better than you, and regardless of how smart or dumb the material they throw on you is, you have to deal with it. You're going to be a peasant up under Caesar in Rome, and you're going to like it. That's what will happen if we do not bring the vision of we the people back and honoring we the people. All right, so I've spent some time on that. Let's go a little bit further. I want us to talk about the language, a more perfect union, because this is so clever. This is a really, really smart thing, because they don't say that we're here for a perfect union, but a more perfect union. And that's not by accident. America is not a utopia. It's never going to be a utopia. It's not perfect. And it did not claim to be perfect. It never even said its goal was to be perfect. It said its goal was to be more perfect. And that's a big distinction. If we're honest about the world, we will recognize that people are not basically good, that we are naturally sinful, and this has been the case since the fall. And when we look at human history, human history is not storied by people who in majority live in peace and prosperity. Human history is not filled with, with people who have been able to pursue the, the happiness in life which is good. Human history is storied by people who have lived in majority under the tyranny of a minority band of, well, corrupt tyrants. That's what human history looks like. A small group of corrupt tyrants lord over the peasants. That's what most of human history looks like. And the reason why a more perfect union is relevant to this conversation is because since the fall, there have been exactly zero perfect nations in human history, including the one which was anointed by God. There have been exactly zero. However, whenever we see people who have wanted to make a utopia, like in you know, Stalinist Russia or even Nazi Germany or even in Chairman Mao's China, whenever people have wanted to create a utopia, they have done extraordinary evil. They have made a wretched hell on earth. What we have to realize is that good intentions do not restrain hell. A lot of times we excuse our own desire for perfection, our desire for utopia under the notion that says, well, you know, but but that person was so bad, so it's okay that we implement all of this stuff. It's okay that we concentrate power this way. It's okay that we don't let people have a voice because those people are bad. Whatever justification people have, whenever we start to pursue utopia and believe that we can have a utopia, you're going to have something that is much more evil. And in America, there is an understanding that we live after Eden and we live before Jesus has judged the living and the dead. Therefore, nothing is going to be perfect. And do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. And that's Galatians 6-7. What we have right now is a lot of people who looking at the imperfections of America, which there are a lot of imperfections. Again, it's not perfect. But when you look at us throughout the context of the fall and that we're all sinners, America has been uniquely good in the course of human history. And that's just undebatable, if you're honest. If you have eyes for goodness, eyes for truth, you will see that that is the case. America has been a unique beacon for good in the course of human history. And... What a lot of people do is they are sowing falsehood that rejects that. It rejects the American philosophy. And they say, well, because of these imperfections, we need to tear it down and create something else. But according to the biblical principle of Galatians 6-7, if you are sowing deconstruction, if you are sowing the act of tearing down, then you are going to reap a destroyed pit. That is what you will get. A lot of people think that if we can just take down the system, the world will naturally be better. No, it won't. No, it won't. It doesn't matter who you put in charge. None of us are God. None of us are all powerful, all knowing, all seeing. There is only one who walked the face of this earth that was fully God, fully man. And he was hung on a cross. And even he, in coming out of that grave when he resurrected, Jesus did not snap his fingers and create a utopia. When the Holy Spirit fell on Pentecost, The Holy Spirit and those tongues of fire didn't come burn up people and replenish the world with a utopia. And if God didn't do that in his miraculous ministry, we're a bit idolatrous to think that we are going to have that perfection in our nations. So we have to be honest about where we're at. And that's a biblical truth because that's actually how you get closer to the good. The odd thing is when you pursue a more perfect world in honest recognition of failure, that actually takes you closer to goodness than the desire for utopia. Because the desire for utopia ultimately ends up that when you face the fact that there are still differences between groups, that there are still people who do not rise to the top, You have to start cutting the legs out from under people. You have to start putting people in camps. You have to start putting people in mass graves and gulags. And before you know it, you have created one of the most vile hells that could ever be imagined. And on the point, it is easier to create hell than it is to close evil. It's easier to open Pandora's box than to seal it up. And in Paradise Lost by John Milton, the enormous poem. The portress of hell, the the gatekeeper down there, she opens up the gates of hell, but then she finds she can't close them. And the poem reads, she opened those infernal doors on whose hinges great harsh thunder that the lowest bottom shook of chaos, but to shut excelled her power. The portress of hell can open the gates of hell all day long, but she can't close them. There's a lot of people who want to tear things down, but they don't really understand what they're tearing down, for one, but they also don't have the power to build something up. Some cases, they don't even have the desire to. We, as creatures, we have the power to kill. We do not have the power to resurrect. And there have been exactly zero utopias since Eden. And I want us to read now from C.S. Lewis, who kind of talks about this concept, that it's better to pursue the more perfect union than the perfect union. C.S. Lewis, in his work, God in the Docks, says, Of all tyrannies, a a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. And I stuttered a little bit in that, so let me reread it because I really want this to soak in. And it's for that reason, too, that it's just good to reread this. C.S. Lewis says, Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under the omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep, and his cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They may be more likely to go to heaven, yet at the same time, likelier to make a hell of earth. This very kindness stings with an intolerable insult. To be Cured against one's will and cured of the states which we may not regard as disease is to be put on a level of those who have not yet reached the age of reason or those who never will, to be classified with infants, imbeciles, and domestic animals. And what C.S. Lewis is saying is that those who want to cure you of something which is not even really. A disease you may not even regard it as a disease those who want to come in and for your own good oppress you for your own good take your liberty away those are the ones who are truly capable of evil and tyranny and what we have to understand is that we do live in between the time of Eden and the judgment of the living in the dead and that's really important to understand In Mark chapter 14, verse 7, Jesus says, You will always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me with you. Now, of course, the context of this is Jesus going to the cross, but in this, Jesus reminds us of a truth that you can't dismiss. You can't just ignore this verse because, well, Jesus is saying this in passing while going to the cross. Jesus tells us quite clearly, from the time of Eden to the time he judges the living and the dead, the poor are going to be with you. You're an idolater if you think you're going to fix that. And what actually happens in that text, in the context of this, is Judas Iscariot, he wants to take the money of the alabaster jar. Again, just to kind of spend some time in this gospel um, story real quick, there's a lady that comes to Jesus and she takes alabaster and she pours it on Jesus' feet. She's weeping, she's anointing Jesus' feet. And again, you could practically say, well, that's a waste of money to pour all that expensive stuff on Jesus' feet. But actually, it's not, because it's showing love for the master of all creation. Of What better is there something to spend money on than, than, than loving Jesus and washing his feet in oil? But nonetheless, Judas comes along and he says, why not spend that money and give it to the poor? And Jesus says, you always got the poor. But in thinking that you can give something to the poor that actually belongs to God, that belongs elsewhere, you're actually going to end up rejecting God. You're going to end up rejecting the good. In believing in utopia, you actually reject God. And what that means for us is that perfection belongs to God. There will be a place without suffering, pain, or crying that will happen. That's the new heaven, the new earth. We're not there yet. And we ask ourselves the question, why is there suffering in the world? Why are there different outcomes between different people and different groups? The answer to that is not simple. Sometimes it's obvious, like when you have laws that permit slavery. That's obvious. You can eradicate that. Easy. Other times it's not so clear. And we can look somewhere like North Korea and South Korea. The reason that North Koreans are in such poverty and afflicted by such tyranny isn't because of the luxury of the South Koreans. The South Koreans, they have really excelled in a lot of areas here in the last few decades. I mean, you can even look at cars from South Korea. You can look at something like in the the early '90s, the Ford Aspire was a, a rebranded Kia. You can look at the the aesthetics of a Kia in the early 2000s, and then you can look at a new Kia and see the Kia Stinger, which is out there, which is a a very powerful rear-wheel drive car that looks a lot like a high-end you know BMW or something like that. And you can realize they went from being kind of you know economical cars to you know mid-range cars to now they're aspiring for really excellent and luxurious things. You can see that that culture has aspired to great things. But the reason for the suffering in North Korea isn't because of these high aspirations in South Korea. You can point to that and say, well, quite clearly there's a totalitarian dictator in North Korea and that's why they're suffering there. But when you find other instances in the world Say, within South Korea, you will find that there are some people who live more luxurious lives than others. Some who can afford the Kia Stinger, and some who might just have the Kia Soul. And the reason for those differences is not quite the same as the reason between North and South Korea. And it's hard to really give that answer. And in Scripture, we're told not to covet, not to play God, not to be idolaters. And we can address the things which we actually have some certainty of. But you don't go and falsely accuse when you just assume something is there. And, of course, that makes us a little bit like Satan to accuse that. But when it comes to this language that we find here, a more perfect union, it is about being honest about fallen creation. Okay, let's go on to our next piece of language here, and that is to ensure domestic tranquility. All right, now as we look at this language, I want us to talk about the proper role of government. Because the language here, it tells us the proper role of government. It tells us it is to ensure domestic tranquility. And that language of insurance is pretty important. I want us to think about insurance for a minute, whether it be your home insurance, it be your car insurance, your health insurance, whatever. When you pay your insurance bill, or it's taken automatically out of your check, I want us to realize that that is something that doesn't make your living or earn your living, but it is something done with the money that you make And it's done to help put in place a structure that helps smooth over rough patches in life. Insurance is not what makes our money. It's what is done with the products of our labor. And I know all this can get kind of hairy, and y'all just bear with me through all of this. But insurance is not your job, unless you work in insurance. But even then, your insurance bill is another matter. Um, But by the way, insurance it itself is not what creates the wealth. Insurance is something that you actually hope you never use. It's for a rainy day, a dark valley. The government's job is not to create domestic tranquility. Insurance and creation are not the same thing. We know that with how we work our finances. Insurance can be pretty expensive, but it's not the same thing as the creation of of wealth. It is not the U.S. government's job to create domestic tranquility. And that was never its intent, its design, and it's simply not possible for a government to actually create domestic tranquility. Its job and its role is to in some way be an insurance for the domestic tranquility. And like all insurances, you hope that it never has to be applied. You hope that the government never has to step in to ensure domestic tranquility because it's not really capable of doing that. But what is recognized here in the preamble is that we the people are. People are responsible for domestic tranquility, neighborhoods, people who actually know one another. It's a lot easier to hold your neighbor accountable than it is somebody you've never met in the government. This is actually one of the reasons why nations are, are here on the earth. They're not just about excluding people. Nations are restraints against sin. When you recognize that we're sinners, you realize that actually having borders around things and keeping things local, keeping economies local, helps hold one another accountable. One of the very real problems we have is that in parts of the world today, there are slaves in sweatshops who make a lot of clothing. It's hard to hold that accountable when it's on the other side of the world. But if you have a business that's down the street that's treating its employees badly, you can go over there and do something about that. You can either choose not to patronize that business. You can go over there and actually confront the people who are causing this evil. The more local things are, the easier it is to hold them accountable. If you're going to church with the same person who's doing something sinful in their business, you can sort that out there in the family of God. And what we have to understand is that the insurance of domestic tranquility, it recognizes that we the people have responsibility in holding one another accountable and the government is only there as an insurance policy. And insurance is not the beginning and neither is it the end. Hopefully, you never have to use it. Hopefully, the government doesn't have to be involved. It's an insurance policy. But the people are the ones who are actually responsible for domestic tranquility because they're the ones who are actually capable of it. In Proverbs 22, 6, it says, Train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he grows older, he will not abandon it. Who do we think this verse is written for in Proverbs 22? I've seen this verse used in parenting devotionals and stuff like that. Because we read it, and it's pretty clearly talking about parents. When somebody gets inaugurated or they take an oath of office, they don't read Proverbs 22, 6 to them. Because we know the proper role of government isn't in the training up of children. That responsibility, it lies with the parents. And families and churches, families and churches they should be the ones handling the domestic tranquility, not the government. That is actually how America was founded. Whether people like it or not, America was founded... That this idea that we the people would be a moral and religious people, where we hold one another accountable and we hold the government accountable rather than the government holding us accountable. One of the things which is really interesting about the founding fathers in America is that they're all sinners. Um, And guess what? Everybody born today is indeed a sinner. But what is different about the founding fathers and ourselves today is the founding fathers recognized they were sinners. And in the structures they created, in the writings they produced, in everything they put together in a nation, they actually put together checks and balances against their own sinful preferences. Whether or not they had a good relationship with Christ Jesus, whether they were a deist, whether they were somebody who went to church every Sunday, whether they were a Freemason, whether they were somebody who just recognized there's some higher truth, it doesn't matter because As they walked through the valley of the shadow of death, and the American Revolution was indeed that, when it came decision-making time, they gave honor to God. They may have been terribly sinful in their own lives, but when it came to write something down on paper, they put their own sin aside. And by the way, I'm not saying they were sanctified or that they were saved in doing this. I'm just saying the facts of how our nation was founded. Take it or leave it. It's the truth of history. When they came to sit things down, They started from the premise of God's providence. That there is a higher power and our rights come from Him. They started with this recognition that says, I'm sinful and I need checks and balance because I know I'm sinful. I don't need to have absolute power. George Washington doesn't need to be president for life. He doesn't need to be king. He knows he's a sinful man. And in our own day and age, a lot of times we think about rights and things as protection against what other people might do but the founding fathers had protections against what they might do and a huge portion of american philosophy is the simple recognition that one's own sin needs to be restrained and from that we find that slavery couldn't last in america yes there were founding fathers who owned slaves but the wheels they set in motion sell an end to their own failure their own sinful wickedness was stopped by the wheels that they set in motion. They weren't big enough men to stop it themselves in their life. They couldn't turn off the computer and get away from whatever it was they were looking at on online. They couldn't get away from that. But they knew that it was wrong, and they put the stuff in motion to stop it. Now, again, what consciousness they had on this, it doesn't matter because that's actually how things panned out. The philosophy they set in motion ended slavery. And when we go back to that Romans 13 verse, give honor to whom honor is due, we must recognize that honor goes to God first and things higher than ourselves. To set aside our own opinions, to look at the the good things of God and figure out how we can implement that in the world around us. And in our modern day and age, our politicians, our journalists, the people, I might just say anybody who, who likes to spend time on the television... It is very common for these people to think that everything starts and ends with them and that they need to be there in elected office because they somehow are not guilty of sin that needs restraint. We see a lot of political banter across the aisle at political parties, but the American philosophy was actually banter inward at one's old self, saying, I don't need to be president for life. You know, we have all these questions about term limits right now, And good luck trying to have Congress pass its own term limits laws. not going to happen, I don't think. I would love to see myself proven wrong, but I just don't see it happening. But George Washington literally put those terms limits on himself. It wasn't across the aisle bantering and branding, but it was just recognition of one's own sin. The next language I want us to talk about is to provide for the common defense. And the word common is really important here. The specific language is very revealing. Government is not all of life. And it's not here to provide all of life. But it does have a role when it comes to the common good and the common demands. And this must be put in its proper place. Ephesians four twenty-seven says, Do not make room for the devil. In our nation's history... Sinful people recognize that the devil will work his way in. And again, whether or not they had a great understanding of that doesn't matter because they made room for God in our founding documents. You can go back to the Mayflower Compact. In the name of God, for the glory of God, and for the advancement of the Christian faith, amen. That's not meant to be a political philosophy or some secular you know, separation of church and state document. That is meant to be a document of Christian history. Period. Our founding did, in fact, put God in the center. But now, we don't only break the law of Ephesians 4.27 of not making room for the devil. We have totally inverted it and only made room for the devil and not made any room for God. And now we're in an era of reaping. And when it comes to the language of the common defense, the word common is very important. We have to have a vision of the common good. We have to have that set before us that we might aspire to it. Sadly, we're at a place right now where we have committed the suicide of thought, where rather than defining the good, the true, and the beautiful, rather than giving room to God in the public sphere, we've got this very unfortunate line of thinking that says we're here to hear different perspectives and value people on everything other than being a child of God, value their groups, read their statistics. And we've spent so much time Listening to all voices as if all voices are equally truthful, that we have forgotten to ever assert what is true, and we've taught ourselves to reject truth. We've closed our eyes to the point where we can't even tell what is true anymore. Trying to sort out truth, if you turn on the news, is like trying to sort out melted chocolate mixed with mud. Good luck with that. Yeah, there is something delicious and sweet down there, but there's also something pretty nasty. And it all looks the exact same. We must get back to recognizing there is a good, there is a metric. There's an order of things. The suicide of thought has been fully implemented in our world. People no longer can think clearly. We say, well, everything might be equally true. I could be, you know, wrong. And we we think about your truth, my truth, and we forget God's truth. When a preacher preaches God's truth on Sunday, it's not their opinion, hopefully. Hopefully they're actually being a steward of something trusted to them by God. There is things larger than ourselves. There are bigger truths than ourselves. And sadly in our modern world, we're ruled by platitudes, hollow slogans, meaningless stuff. Like the call for unity or being together. Unity for unity's sake means nothing. Togetherness means nothing. If you're all unified in a mass grave, Well, that's pretty awful. To really have a meaningful good unity, then you must define the common good. In our modern culture, our modern politics, it does not want to be caught defining the common. And whenever it does define the common, the common good, some sort of standard by which people should live, it's always wretchedly evil. Like drag queen storytime hour being a good thing. It's always something that is just absolutely wretched that is completely against the American foundational principles and against all the premises of Scripture. If they ever do get around to praying, it's something like the prayer we had in Congress this year, which said, To the monotheistic God Brahma, known by many names and many faiths, by all people, Amen." and a woman. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. And if this is what we're sowing, if when... We get around to praying, that is the best we can do. My, my, my. Do not expect the hand of providence to bless that one. And I want to go back to the language of justice and couple that with this language of the common defense. Because in America, there was a recognition of the individual. And to really understand the American philosophy, we have to understand the individual. Valuing people, valuing yourself, and valuing yourself, others, as individuals, that's not selfish. It's not the same thing as consumerism. It's very popular to conflate and play bait and switch and say consumerism is the same thing as individualism. No, it's not. It's not. But at the same time, we are individuals who live within a larger collective. You are your brother's keeper. You are supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater love than to lay down your... Life for your neighbor. These things are true, but at the same time, you're not held accountable for things beyond your power, for someone else. God does not come to Nicodemus there in John chapter 3. Jesus does not address him as the Pharisee who brought in all the corruption that the Pharisees brought in. He addresses him as a man called Nicodemus. And in Matthew chapter 9, 9, as Jesus went on from there, He saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's office, and he said to him, Follow me. And Matthew got up and followed Jesus. The gospel teaches us to view people as individuals, to view people as groups, as their skin color, their superficial characteristics as a man or a woman. That is evil and unbiblical. It is. You'll find there in the gospels, Jesus sees a man called Matthew. The world sees a tax collector and a sinner they see the group Jesus sees the individual now this is something that i know is going to to hit on a lot of nerves for people because there are a lot of people who are worried about the differences between groups which are real and they're worried about people being prejudged about what group they're in that is a real problem it's a sin that's been with us throughout the fall ever since the fall into eden people have been judged based on what group they're in and if we want a more perfect union we do have to do something about that however the answer is not to continue judging people as groups. If the problem is that people have been judged based on their group rather than having a personal chance for the pursuit of happiness, you're not going to fix that by continuing to view people as groups. If you want to sow a world where people are not judged based on their group identity, you're not going to or excuse me, if you want to reap a world where people are not judged by their group identity, you're not going to get that by sowing it. It's become very popular in our modern world to have different weights for different groups. And when I say weights, I mean kind of like on scales. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 23 says, Differing weights, they are an abomination to the Lord, and a false scale is no good. It doesn't say that you can adjust the scales differently if someone is poor or if someone is really wealthy. If someone, you know, committed some terrible sin to get that money, you can change the skills. doesn't say that. says, differing weights are an abomination to the Lord. Period. It's not good. And in our modern world, we have to realize that if we want to help people, if we want to do something to pull people upwards, well, then we're going to have to sow some upward aspirations. And here's a little truth for you the world doesn't want you to know because it wants to completely nullify your ability to make a difference. We have to stop believing that the world is changed by policy and start realizing that the world is changed when we act our lives as good Samaritans, when we be good neighbors. Yes, on the collective scale of society, you can eradicate something like slavery. You can outlaw that. But as far as actually building people up, improving their lives, that can only be done on the personal level. And people only matter on the personal level if you respect them as individuals. If you want to actually make a difference in the world, we have to stop worrying about the plastic straws and all the stuff which is redesigning all of the world in our image and start focusing on who are the people in my life? How can I actually help my neighbor? How can I make an influence in somebody who doesn't know the Lord? They don't know how to do this skill or that skill. How can I invest realistically in the people near me? The more local things are, the better your chances are of actually building up. And just to give you some tools to how to debunk some of the nonsense of the world, I find it interesting that the same people who decry stereotyping will also tell you that you cannot be colorblind. And this is, of course, illogical because there's a breakdown. Viewing people as groups, even if you have good intentions, is the same thing as stereotyping. Saying that we need that group over here for their perspective is stereotyping. You may think that it's different because you have a good intention in doing so, but it's the same thing. People will somehow be like those tyrants that C.S. Lewis talks about. They'll feel good about this because they think they're doing it for a good purpose. But their good intentions do not change the truth of the matter. They are using unbiblical thinking. It's become very popular to treat one group with soft gloves because of their collective history and to have another group treated with anger and contempt because of their collective history. This is not biblical. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. If you are sowing corn, you cannot say that the corn identifies as carrots and therefore will be reaped as carrots. If you're sowing corn, you're going to reap corn. You cannot sow viewing people as groups and hope to reap a world where people are not viewed and judged as groups. Differing weights are an abomination to the Lord. And when this comes back to actually examining the common defense, justice, that language which we found early on in the preamble, if we want to actually do something to promote them, we have to implement that biblical principle that says a man called Matthew matters. Because... This care for the individual, this respect for the individual, it is something which is entirely unique and not found outside of Christianity. Pharaoh in Egypt does not care what's going on with his slaves or his officials. As long as they do what he wants them to do, he doesn't care what's going on in their heart. You know, the Pax Deorum, which I talked about there in Rome, doesn't matter if you like the orgy that you're going in there for or not. It just matters you please the God of Rome. doesn't matter. Caesar in Rome, he doesn't care what's going on in the hearts and minds of his officials or his peasants. As long as they fall in line when they need to, it's all good. The same thing with Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, or Stalin, or Hitler, or Chairman Mao. All worldly thinking. As long as the groups around them are doing what they're supposed to, they don't care what's going on in their personal life. Even in the Old Testament, the Pharisees and the traditions which really started to put together the deeper understandings of scripture that happened in the time of the exile before jesus comes the pharisees they put together this philosophy that says you know we're going to be really strict with the law we're going to bring about some sort of holiness by enacting the law to the point that we don't even pick grain on the sabbath well guess what they didn't care about what was actually going on in the heart jesus is unique in coming and caring about what's going on in someone's mind, body, and soul of every man or woman created in the image of God. Doesn't matter whether you're emperor or you're a prisoner in the darkest dungeon, the morality of your soul matters equally to God. And that is the premise of all freedom. It really is. It may not be immediately obvious why that is the the beginning of all freedom, but it's, it's the beginning of all charity as well. Oddly enough, the false guise of utopia, which seeks to have equality through all groups, it's actually not as charitable as caring about people as individuals. Because you can have groups all equal in a mass grave. There's no virtue in that. But to actually care for the poor, to, to care for the poor, you have to care about the quality of their soul, the quality of their life, that they might have some sort of upward aspiration. That they won't just be, like in Acts 3, waiting outside the temple begging for alms, but that they might be healed and be able to walk themselves. So without starting from the premise that each and every child of God has value because they are a child of God made in His image, you have failed and you cannot truly care for the poor. And in the preamble to the Constitution, the framework is set, we the people, for a more perfect union, for justice, for justice. For the common defense, to provide for it, not to create it, not to assign it as our will, but to provide for it, that is the way. And it all begins on recognizing that we as individuals need transformation, we're all sinners. So to kind of start wrapping this up, there's still two more things I want us to look at. The first of which is promotion of the general welfare, to promote the general welfare. Again, they were not... Ignorant of the language insure. Language like warranty or guarantee. But what they did understand is that the government cannot create or supply the general welfare. It can only do what is necessary to promote it, to facilitate it. They knew the language of insurance. The government cannot insure general welfare. It just can't. And that means if anyone thinks it's the government's job to assign the general welfare to step in and fix all the problems that go awry, then they don't need to be anywhere near the reins of power because they have faulty thinking. Un-American thinking, also unbiblical thinking. One of the things that bothers me about debates in the modern day and age is they're all from one side. And regardless of how a debate moderator might treat the different candidates, the fact that they all start from the premise of, why haven't you fixed this yet? Or what will you do in government to fix this problem? How can government fix this problem? Tells you they're all from one premise. They're from the big government progressive premise that wants to give more and more power to the government and to have really more restraints on the individual. Not restraints on sin necessarily, but restraint on personal sovereignty. And one of the really big problems with this is that it's faulty. The government isn't capable of of fixing problems and the premise is wrong. This language that says to promote the general welfare The correct line of thinking should be, how can the government, you know, be that insurance policy while also getting out of the way so that the people can hold one another accountable? How can we actually restrain our own sins so that we're not just tyrants that inflict stuff on others? How do you put those term limits on yourself? How do you restrain yourself? How do you do the things necessary to provide for the common defense to ensure the the well-being of a nation without actually playing God and trying to assign that? How do you promote the general welfare without playing God and thinking that you can just write a check to someone and give them the general welfare? Because what happens is those who think that they can step in and do that, they can't. But they create evil, they create dependency, they create things which reduce people down, as C.S. Lewis calls it, that tyranny and bigotry of low expectations, that world that says, just sit outside the church and wait for alms, don't ever expect to be healed, that worldview that wants to control you by being the one that you're dependent on, that is very wicked. The last thing I want us to talk about here are the blessings of liberty and to ordain the constitution. So, blessings and ordination, these are religious terms. And the preamble has religious language. But they're also language of responsibility. Blessings, they always come at a cost in hard labor. Real liberty is freedom from inescapable burdens. It's not anarchy, but it's, you know, there is no liberty without the law. As Moses says there, Charlton Heston, there in the Ten Commandments. Our nation was founded on the idea that one person should not be ruled by another or another class that thinks they have better access and knowledge than than you do. And of course, the gospel is a repudiation of that too. You see that religious language in the blessings of liberty, but then you also find religious language in the ordaining of the constitution. And I want to talk about how both of these have responsibility. So I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher in a Nazarene church. I'm ordained. And... I want us to understand, ordination is not the same thing as salvation. It's not the same thing as sanctification. I was ordained by a general superintendent. People ordain things. It's a sign of saying, this thing over here, we're recognizing it has a special role. It has something to do with with God. And we're recognizing that God is going to work through this. Hopefully. If anyone thinks that ordination sanctifies, that ordination makes someone more holy or special... They've lied to themselves and they're lying to you. Ordination does not sanctify. And I say that as someone who is ordained, I'm a reverend. It it does not make you a special class of person. What it does is it gives you a special responsibility. It gives, in my case, as a pastor, a reverend, the responsibility of caring for a flock. And hopefully something good will happen out of that. But it is a responsibility. To ordain this constitution is to give a responsibility to the people. We've said we're handing this over to God that providence may work through it, but this is a responsibility. It's something which must be kept, must be kept by a moral and religious people. And when we compare this to the gospel, I want to go to Acts chapter 2 because both the Constitution and the New Testament are clear repudiations of tribalism, of viewing people as groups, of having this idea that there's an expert class that you should listen to and you should trust, They're not sanctified by being experts, folks. Preachers aren't sanctified by being ordained. They're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We have deluded ourselves if we think people who, with their years of experience and expertise, they know something better than you. If you think they're actually made good and holy by that, you've been lied to. They're not. And, you know, to the the question of all this really quickly... In the church, we generally hesitate from talking about politics from the pulpit because we know that it's corrupt and corrupting. To talk about presidents and stuff like that, it, it it's a little bit corrupt. You don't want to yoke yourself to that stuff. But the truth that it's all corrupt and corrupting doesn't end with people who are elected. My goodness, of course it applies to people who are bureaucrats. It applies to people within the church, whether they be somebody who's a pastor, a professor, or just... Somebody who's been sitting on the pews their entire life. The corruption of sin has no limits. Let's get to Acts chapter 2, shall we? Because in this, it finds the repudiation of group identities. And it says in Acts chapter 2, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a noise like a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And tongues that looked like fire appeared to them, distributing themselves, and a tongue rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with different tongues, as the Spirit was giving them the ability to speak out. Jumping down to Acts 2, verse 17, it's, this is a quotation from the prophet. It says, And it shall be in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons, your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will have dreams. And even my male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit on those in those days and they will prophesy. We the people. This is not the Borg from Star Trek where everybody's a collective and nobody thinks for themselves. What we find in Acts is that you matter as much to God. You matter so much to God that the Holy Spirit came with a tongue of fire to rest on you. Not for a special group of people there in the room. Oh yes, there were some apostles there. There were some people who walked with Jesus, knew him personally. People who rejected Jesus and some people who were a little more faithful. But the Holy Spirit came to rest on all in the church. There's no special group of people who are priests now no special group of Levites, no free, no slave, nor male nor female servant. And when you put that in the order of things, that's not saying there is no difference between men and women. God made the heavens and the earth and he also made men and women in his image fully. And there are differences between them. And that's okay because they're both fully made in the image of God and vital to one another. Um, But when you put that in the order of things, those details are real, but that's not the identity that you should be concerned about. What you should be concerned about is, do people know Christ? Are they a child of God? That's how we should be seeing people. You put things in the order. The most important is, are we a child of God? That's what you should have eyes for. And the U.S. Constitution, in its preamble, it laid the framework for that to an extent that was much better than any of the character of those who wrote it. And it's amazing. The character of the people who wrote this were complete failures. But they did something better than themselves. So here we have it. This is our, our lesson for today. And we'll go ahead and wrap things up. I hope this has been useful to you in some way or another. And we'll continue by looking through some more of the articles and the Bill of Rights and some various pieces of American history And really learning the philosophy that we need if we want to have some restoration in our nation. Because what we're going to have if there is no restoration is we're going to see America collapse and return back to the old feudal tribalistic paganism that has marked the world since the fall. We're going to find that there will be a special class of people who get to impose stuff on others. Regardless of how smart or dumb those group of people are, they will get to impose their will on all the peasants, regardless of how smart or dumb the peasants are. And we're already seeing that start to happen. Where well, the rule of law is not equally distributed across the the spectrum, we're already seeing there be people who say, well, trust us, trust the science, trust this. And it's not even real science, it's more like Bill Nye science. It's, it's a fake religion. Real science is congruent with the laws of God's creation. They're fixed and they're mathematical and they're perfect. So, as we, we close this, I think you for spending time with me. Again, I'm Pastor Jay Dylan Proctor. and I've got my details up there. If you would like to reach out to me, send me an email at jeffdylanproctor at gmail.com. So with that, God love you and have a blessed day.